0: What to know podcast explores best practices innovation and latest trends with industry experts with an eye toward helping you the listener stay ahead of the ever-changing marketing and communications landscape
1: good afternoon this is aaron strout cmo of w2o and host of the what to know podcast show i am here uh at the tail end of the provoke conference we are sitting at the esteemed watergate hotel and we have Maybe one of the most special episodes that uh, I've done yet, and I've done a lot of good ones. We are sitting here talking today to uh, three of the key people from the March for Our Lives organization. Uh, we have Ariel Hobbs, who's a board member. We have Lauren Hogg, who's a co-founder, and Delaney Tarr, who's a co-founder. And then we also have the benefit of having Eric, Holl- Eric Hollister-Williams, who is the managing principal of Precision, who works closely with these folks. And uh, Stephanie Cutter, who is one of his colleagues, was kind enough to interview them right before this, so I got to see some sneak previews. Um, So first of all, welcome to the three of you. And we have one mic, so you don't have to say, glad to be here. So uh, I wanna start with this idea, or this question that you've answered a thousand times, so I'm gonna make you answer it one more time. And that is, how did you come up with the idea for the march? Delaney, you look like, you're the, you're the one that started a lot of the questions, so a lot of the answers.
2: <laughs> yes, I'm a talker. Um, so the March for Our Lives is something that was both organic and strategic. It's something that we stress a lot. Um, we do repeat over and over again the stories of us gathering on a living room floor, not even two days after the shooting, and deciding what we were going to do amidst calls with press, with celebrities, with people that wanted to help us make a difference, and for us, it was about taking all of that gravity, all of that movement and motion that we had accumulated in a matter of a few hours and turning it into something real and tangible, knowing that the press cycle would fade away, the cameras would turn, people wouldn't pay attention if we didn't do something. So we did something and that something was a huge act of protest. It was a march that we organized in like a month, which is not long enough to organize a march in most scenarios, but we did it anyways. And that was a lot of what we would do is people people would say, no, you can't do this, and then we'd say, try me, and then we'd do it anyways, and we'd succeed. It's a testament to how determined we were to take such a horrible thing and make it into something that could be potentially positive and could make the world a better place, but it's also a testament to the fact that like, we just had to do something, and it happened to be a march because that was the most powerful thing that we knew we could do, was to show how many people cared about this issue.
1: How did you get the word out and organize once you decided to uh, to put this together? Lauren?
2: So
0: we talked about a lot of this on the forum, but one of our greatest tools was social media. And um, much like I said before, social media very early on became like a grenade of sorts. It was one of our greatest tools, but at the same time, one wrong move. Um, and our whole organization, our whole movement could have been down in flames. Um, so I think... One of the first things that we did was starting this hashtag to get it trending on Twitter, hashtag never again. And I actually, I don't even know if I've told Delaney this, but I remember like when we were, the day that all of us were tweeting it out for the first time, one of the first places I saw it was on Delaney's Instagram, um, on our Instagram story. And I was laying on my parents' bed and just taking a nap and then I woke up and I saw that. And it just spiraled from there really and just us tweeting and us putting things out on our social media constantly flooding the atmosphere because people were looking for what we had to say people were looking for the ability for them to digest what we the survivors of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas had to say. Um, and we we turned that very, very early on into not just what we had to say, but what the national narrative around gun violence had to say, and especially people that haven't been hurt.
1: Well, it's amazing, amazingly powerful, and along those lines, during the conference just now, you, I think, I can't remember which of you said it, but one of you mentioned, I think Lauren, it was you, that there was a feeling that adults failed you after the shooting. And it was in relation to a question that Stephanie had asked. And that was, I'm sure, or one of the audience members asked you, I'm sure you have a lot of people that are either copycatting or trying to connect with you or or take advantage of. So I'm going to start this actually with Eric because I know one of the things you you all said is you kind of have that sniff test where you eyeball an adult, and if they don't, and you're adults as well, you're young adults, but older adults, you sort of give them that like, does this person feel right? Do they feel like they've got a um, true motives, right, or, or good motives? And so, Eric, I'm sure going in, with Precision, this must have been a little bit tricky because you knew that you had this powerful group. They had started this amazing movement. Uh, you knew probably you could help based on the fact that you're a integrated strategy and marketing firm really with deep roots in politics, working under the likes of Obama and others. Um, how did you all decide to go in and approach this group? And then I'd love to get your reaction on what that was like when Precision came to you and you you felt like, are we gonna work with these guys or are we not gonna work with them?
3: Sure, so I'm gonna take it from a slightly different um, angle. Um, Rather than kind of approaching March for the first time, um, really thinking about when I actually engaged the students for the first time, um, because it was completely, as they said on stage, they don't accept you until you've kind of earned your stripes. And I kind of got that sense from the beginning um, that this was a group of young people who clearly, from the news and all the coverage that they had um, garnered, uh, had a, a a way about them that um, was undeniable, and I truly had to earn my stripes. I mean, I remember some text messages and emails with people finally kind of giving the thumbs up and yellow hearts, um, basically offering <laughs> offering up that kind of access to kind of being part of the collective. Uh, I would say this that it's been such an honor um, to to work with them really as. They, they, we think of ourselves as partners, but only because they've allowed us to be partners. And um, I think that's where, that's where the really good work comes in is that we've been able to kind of sit together and think and they've taught us probably more than we've ever given them or taught them Um, but it has become this um, just amazing partnership of ideas and figuring out how do we like crack this nut to kind of just be out there just a little bit more um, to to make a difference whether it's um, in California on the other side of the country or somewhere in Texas or uh, or in Florida like wherever it may be
1: so team what did you think when people like Eric came and approached you and with the, you know, you were giving them the yellow hearts and all that good stuff. What made you feel like, you know what? I think we can trust these, uh, these adults.
4: So my first interaction with precision was on the road to change. And my specific person was Cameron Trimble and like Cameron, (laughs) I was going to this event and they were like, jackie was like hey they want you to do press for this are you cool with that and i was like yeah sure and she was like okay um somebody from precision is gonna come get you so that was like maybe my second day and i was like who is precision like what is this and what are they doing what okay whatever i was like obviously it's something that it's a it's a group that they work with okay and cameron came up to me he said hi i'm cameron i need you to go over there and i need you to do this this and this and at first it was very off-putting And then I realized, I was like, he is one of the funniest people I've ever met in my life. And it's like, though they have a job to do and they understand that and they'll tell us like, hey, I need you at this place to do this and I need you to be on this call to do this over the phone interview or whatever. They always, you can always tell that they're coming from a good place and that they genuinely care about us. They never force us to do anything. They never force us into situations that we don't want to be in. They never force us to say things that we don't, that we don't want to say. They always ask us and make sure that we are okay. And I feel like that's something that, like at least for me, means a lot because they could easily just be like, "Okay, why well, just like only contact you or contact us for like media or press or whatever," but they check up on you and they ask you how are you doing and they ask about your life and they make sure that you that you the person are okay you know and so I was skeptical but I'm always skeptical
1: well I think you need that right and and you said that um and I think rightly so that you have to be careful you've created something very powerful and very you know, it's, it's truly amazing, and I, I can't imagine how many people you get that approach you that want some of this and want to get in, and probably half of them have good intentions and half of them probably don't. So, Ariel, it probably does help that you have skeptics, you know, that you're a skeptic and there are probably skeptics among you. Um, you, look you look like, Delaney, that. you wanted to chime in on something?
2: Um, Yeah, I just I think that we all have a pretty hard earned chip on our shoulder uh, to gain such a platform so quickly, especially one that's as polarizing as it is, where people hate you and want to do awful things Mm. and threaten you and also want to take advantage of you. It's hard to trust. And like Lauren said on that panel, we were failed by the adults around us we became activists people who have a distrust of authority people who are fighting against the powers that be so it's sometimes hard to accept those powers that be i'm incredibly skeptical of adults and it usually takes me about a month longer to warm up to everyone than, than it did for everybody else in the march but like I definitely I remember first knowing about Precision it was a lot of like emails and not face-to-face interactions so I'm like who are these mystical people that I, I, I don't have a face to the name I just keep getting emails telling me where to go and what press hits I'm doing and At the beginning, I was like, how do I feel about this? And it definitely, for us, it takes a sit down. It takes having somebody sit under our gaze, because we can be incredibly intimidating for a group of young people. No, scratch that. We're incredibly intimidating, no qualifiers, because we're sitting there and we're not afraid to judge you. We're not afraid to, to criticize you and to tell you we need you to be honest and authentic and true to your goals and your intentions with us and we can see right through you when you're lying and it's something that definitely took some time to earn
3: can i just add that like ariel said something about like forcing words into to your mouths and like it wouldn't work like us yeah. telling you what to say just would not work and so like being march's firm of record is is certainly a privilege and an honor but it's really about kind of learning from these young people how they want to order the day order the project order the activity so that like we can give it the authenticity that they've already kind of desired and kind of um kind of moved into this 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 space
1: well it's interesting you mentioned young people and i think we as the older people in the room almost feel like we need to mention it because it's so amazing what you've done i can't imagine when i was 16, 17, 18 years old, God knows the things I was doing. So I think part of it is this incredulity of like, holy crap, I know you had this amazingly traumatic thing happen in your lives, but you did something about it. And I think that's the thing where you shouldn't have qualifiers because what you're doing is amazing, irrespective of what your age, sex, race, whatever is. So kudos on that front. Um, I do want to talk a little bit about the road to change. And I do want to talk about the fact, I think Delaney, you were the one that mentioned during the talk that gun violence looks different in every community. And I think one of you mentioned that you decided you were gonna go and meet people in their communities, which is a really powerful message because whether it's in the south, you know, I know you took that that leg, Delaney, Ariel, you were mentioning you sort of focused on the west and Lauren, you are probably across, yeah, the, so you divided and conquered, right? Um, let's talk a little bit about the purpose of that, which I think went across 100 communities and 24 states kicking off in Chicago. What was the original goal and, and what did you accomplish along the way? now lauren wants to jump in go ahead Lauren.
2: oh
0: okay um i was just gonna say i mean we immediately knew after the march that this wasn't something that was just about us this wasn't something that was just about survivors of mass shootings this was something that was happening every single day in communities across the united states but those individuals who were being affected were not getting the platform that we got because of our socioeconomic and racial privilege um So, I mean, going on that tour was vital to, I think, the survival of our organization um, and the authenticity of our organization. I truly believe that if we did not reach out or if these people, if we just didn't meet so many people across the country, whether that be people like Ariel, people like our friends all over. If we didn't meet them, we wouldn't be as strong as we are today. And we wouldn't be here today speaking on this issue if we didn't do that because we would have faded out into oblivion because it would have just been a small group of mostly white students from middle of nowhere, Parkland, Florida. Um, and that we knew that wasn't okay. We knew this was about every form of gun violence, whether that be mass shooting, community shooting, suicide, domestic violence, um, because we needed to be genuine because even though we were young people, we needed to do everything to convince the older generations that we weren't foolish to be frank with you. i um, mean, a big part of that was being authentic in what we were about.
1: So one of the things that you touched on and I can only imagine going into some of these, you know, strongly backed NRA communities and having people you just came out of this uh, like Intense trauma and you're going into the teeth of I hate to say the enemy right where these people in your words hated you And you experienced this vitriol and I think Delaney it might have been you but mentioned Meeting that with humanity and and creating these dialogues Can you talk a little bit about like how do you dig down and find that? Humanity within yourselves when you've been failed and you realize how important that is to actually not punch someone in the face But to actually shake a hand and have a dialogue to try to bring them over the transom
2: I mean Navigating being in Florida, which is a very interesting place politically, um, and in the South, it, it, there was definitely a lot of pushback on what we represented, at least at first, um, when they didn't necessarily know what it was that we stood for and still believed us to be all of those awful things that the certain communities have twisted us to be. and. As silly as it sounds, we had to be the bigger person um, in the face of people who are jeering and waving NRA flags at us, who are trying to intimidate us with their faux guns. We had to stand there straight-faced and offer them a hand and offer them humanity because that is the only way that you can connect and communicate with people. I mean, we had a meeting with a group called the Utah Gun Exchange, and we agreed with them on nothing. but They followed us They did. They followed us around in a tank. Um, And we agreed with them on nothing in our sit-down meeting. But the one thing that I could get out of them was, we want our children to be safe. And even if it's just the smallest thing, the smallest inkling of humanity, we're going to try for it. And we're going to strive for it because you never know whose mind you can change. You never know who you can show the importance of fighting against gun violence on a legislative and community-based level. And really, that is what extending humanity is. That's what creating change is. It's not about just shouting and and being angry, it's about establishing this united front to fight against an issue that impacts everyone, whether they know it or not. And that community and that organizing, it it brought us far and it continues to bring us far.
1: So speaking of creating change, you have put your money where your mouth is and during the, maybe the most important midterm set of elections ever, you all got 50,000 people, young people, to register to vote. I'm assuming you're going to hopefully do more of that for this upcoming election. Delaney's oh, yeah. nodding yes. Oh, yeah. Um, talk a little bit about how did you how did you come up with that idea? Because I think it's, I don't want to say it's easy to go out and talk to people, but that's a hard thing to do. And I think, you know, a few of you mentioned up on stage that a lot of people feel like, why do, my, why am I bothering, right? This is a political system that's not my political system. Why waste my time? How did you change hearts and minds and get those young people to understand the importance of getting up to vote and what is traditionally not just a hard election to get any, you know, it's a hard election to get anyone to vote, never mind just young people. So, Ariel, are you going to chime in on that one? <laughs> I can't.
4: Um, so I would say two things. One thing that was in our control and one thing that was sadly out of control. As mentioned, as um one of the people mentioned, there's been more mass shootings this year than there have been in other years. And we've all noticed the prevalence of mass shootings and whether it's not necessarily that they're more prevalent, they're getting more attention now. And so that in itself, I feel like people actually seeing the communities and seeing people die and seeing, you know, all of like kind of going on Twitter every day and it's like there's another mass shooting, there's another school shooting, somebody else died, somebody, you know, there was another suicide, there was another this, there was another that and kind of having it in, in their faces on, a, in a, on like a medium such as like Twitter that young people are predom- that's predominantly dominated by young people, I feel like made it hard to escape it made it hard for them just to put away and being like, okay, this isn't my issue. You know, this isn't affecting me. I don't know what this is. I don't know very many people that have have been affected by this. And so I think just the prevalence and kind of the attention that gun violence is now getting has kind of, has made it, made it inescapable for young people and kind of forced them to pay attention to the issue and to take it seriously. Um, And something that was, in our control, it's what Lauren said, we made it an issue of survival. And we were basically like, look, if this continues on the way that it is, there's something that me and my friend Kelly say, it's not when another mass shooting, will, like not when another mass shooting will happen, but not not if another mass shooting will happen, but when another, another mass shooting will happen. And for me personally, like they've gotten closer and closer to home, closer and closer to where I stay, closer and closer, to people that I know being involved or myself being involved in a shooting. And so kind of facing the facts and being like, look, this is an epidemic. This will only get worse if we do, if we allow the same people that are in office and that believe the same things. And those people like Lauren mentioned, one representative, you know, in the face of survivors and parents of victims, posting your pic like pulling up your picture of you and your gun smiling you know jovially and kind of being like i don't care you know if we if we continue to allow those people to stay in office people will die and it'll only be a matter of a matter of time before it hits home so kind of making it making it an issue of survival because that's what it is it's we're surviving we're facing a life and this is a life or death issue
1: yeah and it's sad that it's come to this. Uh, I do want to touch on a couple of things. So you have this new plan called the Peace Plan. It's very ambitious, but I love the fact that it's ambitious. Uh, I won't steal the thunder. Talk a little bit about what this looks like and what's included in it.
2: I mean, yeah, the peace plan is a comprehensive legislative plan that we fully intend on implementing as best as we can in the coming years. Uh, one of the main goals is to cut the, the number of gun deaths in half in the next decade, which is a huge thing to undertake, but it's one that we are willingly right, undertaking. And right
1: now that number is about 40,000 a yes. year, correct?
2: Yes, 40,000 people a year are dying. <clears throat> and at this point, we need to do something. And we provided people with the something. We have given them the tangible, actionable steps to take to, to create these legislative shifts, to hold their lawmakers accountable, to appoint um, ahead of gun violence prevention. Uh, there's so many different things that we have on different levels, be it engaging with your community to lobbying on a national level, but the peace plan addresses so many of these components. And it's really the thing that we're pushing forward, especially in the 2020 elections, so that whoever the candidates may be, they can endorse or not endorse our specific policy points. They can put their money where their mouth is and follow through and implement the things that we have shown to them that will work and will reduce gun deaths.
1: So speaking of politics, two quick notes which you mentioned down before uh, down below which I thought was impressive one is that you all sat down with the democratic presidential candidates and listened to their gun violence protection plans and you videoed them your receipt to keep them honest i like that and then the other is i believe the number was 47 um nra-backed candidates in this last election you helped defeat so i hate to get political but good for you for you know fighting the good fight i do want to shift a little bit as i'm watching ariel i'm assuming Tweed and lauren's drawing here but you've talked about the change of your communication style over the course of the last Couple of years almost couple of years talk about what that's meant and I guess since 2018, right? So
2: yeah Just crazy that it's been that long.
1: I know isn't it? I mean, it's I was thinking it was like six months ago But you snap your fingers. So Lauren, I don't know maybe take a crack at what how has the the shift in that? um, Evolved and I know one of the things I think you mentioned was you can tweet now and you've got millions of followers And so that's obviously a huge tool in your in your belt But what other changes have you seen in terms of how you're communicating with your audiences?
0: Um, I mean, I think in a way we didn't change how we spoke very much, but we got a better strategy at how we spoke to people. I mean, our diction very much didn't change, but how we communicated did. For instance, I think the way we speak, the way we are able to use certain terms that young people use. I'm sounding like an old person as I'm saying this. Um, Older. uh, Older person saying this um i think that allowed us to galvanize the younger generation this allowed us to be able to get um one of the highest youth voter turnouts last midterm election then in the last 20 years because people see us other young people see us and a lot of times i believe that they see themselves and they're they feel as though that because we're up here and we're random kids from houston or from parkland um they believe that they too have a voice and that their vote perhaps does matter um so in a way we haven't changed how we speak very much but our strategy in especially tailoring whether we're talking to older generations or people similar to our age is very, very different. Um, And I don't think that's two-faced of us. I think it's just us being genuine and trying to get the most effective amount of um, information across to different generations of people.
1: Well, I like that. Thank you for sharing that. Did you want to chime in on that, Delaney, too?
2: I mean, I just wanted to say that like, we are largely a group of communicators. That is what we do. It is where our foundations are. But we also were thrust into the public sphere at a very young age. And over time, I know for a fact that we've gotten more accustomed to speaking on panels and in interviews and giving speeches. And you've definitely seen that shift in the fact that, yes, we're more experienced. That doesn't make us less authentic. It simply makes us uh, a bit more cognizant of what is is effective and how we can tell our story as powerfully as we intend to. And really, like Lauren said, being strategic about it because as we are further and further out from the big events, from the shooting, from the march, from the road to change, the cameras are a bit fewer and further between, so we have to make every single interview count, and we have to be selective with what platforms we're using and what message we're, we're dispensing to everyone.
3: I think that's so astute, and as, you know, as coming from the agency side and having work, worked with you guys, I mean, that's absolutely right, right? The further you get away, the distance from that, that tragic day, Media's not so interested anymore, and other tragedies have unfortunately slotted in. But here's the other side to that, which you guys have all noted on this on this podcast, which is there was the 2020 Gun Sense Forum that you guys came up with. You came up with the nation's comprehensive plan for ending gun violence. No one else has done that, right? Like, no one, right? So you guys are constantly innovating and evolving to meet the challenge of staying relevant and getting uh, nine... Democratic candidates together to talk about this issue for what is arguably one of the most important uh, presidential cycles in a generation if not more I would say you guys are doing pretty good on the yeah. communications front.
2: I mean I think we're 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 keeping our momentum and we're doing it in, in new and innovative ways because after we did that March everybody just kind of assumed that it was like okay we'll do this March and maybe we'll do it again next year and then never do it again Um but that's not what we did. Like Eric just said, we, we've innovated and we've continued to find new ways to communicate and engage and make a difference. And it has definitely changed over time. What what the things what the next big thing is? It's always something new. It's always something exciting. But it, there are varying what, there are varying methods and levels of communication that we practice.
1: Well, that stick to itiveness that you have certainly makes a big difference too. And I am a big believer that words matter. And I can tell just sitting here with you and having seen you on TV and listening to you at the at the conference that you take that seriously. Now, speaking of serious questions, this is the really tough one that I, I want to get your honest answer on. We'll start with you, Lauren. Yeah. This is the fun question where you're stuck on a deserted island. You can take one album with you. Which album would it be and why?
0: Um... If I was stuck on a deserted island, the album I would probably bring with me would be Blonde by Frank Ocean because that album has been with me in a lot of circumstances, Um, especially like right after the shooting, just getting me through a lot of stuff. Um, And I guess when I'm older, it'll probably remind me of being young and being a teenager. Um, So I would say that album.
1: And It's a great album, by the way. Even I know that my 17-year-old son introduced me to Frank Ocean and Blonde Delaney.
2: Um, So I'm a die-hard Beatles fan. I have the name of a Beatles song tattooed on my body. It's intense. I care a lot about it. Um, So for me, it's it's an issue of picking which Beatles album. And I would say I'm probably going to go with Abbey Road. White Album is a close second. It's just they mean a lot to me. I listen to a lot of their music, like Lauren said, after the shooting. And I think that they provide an avenue and an outlet for every emotion that I'm feeling because there's just such a wide breadth of songs to choose from. And they're great. What's not to like?
1: <laughs> well, you're, you've endeared yourself deep, more deeply to me because that's one of my favorites. Ariel, how about you?
4: Ooh, I had one, and now I have two. Two's okay. Okay. We can make, All right, we can make two work. Okay. We'll, we'll slip great.
1: two albums, because remember the old albums, you put them yeah, into just, a cover? Just tuck one oh in, and then we'll okay. see that you snuck two in.
4: So my first one, um, and they kind of represent two different stages in my life, which I think is hilarious. Um, my first one would be Take Care by Drake, Cause I'm a humongous jerk fan, but I also feel like it for like the point of my life when that album came out and I'm not really saying like the point of my life, like I've lived v- very long. Um, <laughs> um, but the point of my life when that album came out, it really, it, it taught me how to speak my feelings not necessarily the best about that I can speak on policy and I can speak on you know I I can garner people and advocate and everything like that but when it comes to speaking my feelings and talk about my emotions I'm not the best and so that album taught me how to be open and to be expressive and to be vulnerable and things like that so it's an album that I like carry with me everywhere like it's on every anytime I download a music app like that album is probably one of the first albums that I download and I listen to repeatedly because I mean again I'm a Drake fan a massive Drake fan um and then my second album it's a live album it is Beyonce's homecoming album (laughs) I'm a Houstonian, she's a Houstonian, so what? Like, we have that connection. But then also the highs and lows that she went on that album, I feel like just, en- like, encompasses everything that most people experience throughout their lifetime. You have songs like Castles where it's she's very vulnerable and she's very open, but then she also has Don't Hurt Yourself, like, wait, don't think, don't take this kindness for weakness, don't take my vulnerability for like a time for you to strike don't hurt yourself don't forget it and it's very it's a good album to teach you and to help people understand how to be vulnerable and how to be open and how to be expressive and how to be comfortable and feeling sad and be, being comfortable and feeling angry and being comfortable and feeling good about yourself and it just encompasses all of that so I love them both like dearly which is why I can't choose so hard
1: well two great choices and you sort of didn't end around what I usually avoid is the greatest hits and I do allow people to do live albums which are like greatest hits <laughs> Eric probably thought he was going to avoid it but I'm going to ask you for your favorite too um
3: so I I am like cheese ball and I'm big into musicals um so I'm a big fan of s- S- Stephen Sondheim <laughs> and, and Into the Woods is by far one of the best musicals in I, the world and so I, I, I reveal that I am a theater kid at heart
1: <laughs> so I, We've never had that one before, I love that uh, and on that note, because we do need to wrap up this is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O host of the What's to Know podcast I've been joined with, by Delaney Tar uh, co-founder of March for Our Lives, Lauren Hogg also, co-founder Ariel Hobbs, board member, and Eric Hollister-Williams, managing principal at Precision. Thank you all so much for taking the time. Definitely one of the most impactful and one of the most fun podcasts I've ever done. So thank you.
4: Want
0: more episodes of What to Know? We post a new episode every Thursday. Subscribe on iTunes, the podcast app, the Stitcher app, or Spotify, and view the podcast page at w2ogroup.com to Know.